New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. We are attendants at the wake of the old way, and each of us, through our actions, our thoughts, our work, and relationships, is midwifing a new world into existence. This is our destiny, our meaning, our purpose. And when we come to our days with this awareness, when we sense the oak in the acorn of our beings, then we will have the energy to move mountains and shift the tides. These are the words of our guest, Jan Phillips. Today we'll be exploring what it will take for us to create a world that works for all. Jan Phillips is an award-winning photographer, writer, multimedia artist, and national workshop leader. She's co-founder and executive director of the Living Kindness Foundation, a global network for grassroots philanthropists. And she's the author of many books and CDs and DVDs, including The Art of Original Thinking, Mary Your Muse, God is at Eye Level Photography as a Healing Art, Born Gay, and No Ordinary Time, The Rise of Spiritual Intelligence and Evolutionary Creativity, a book of ours for a prophetic age. Join us for the next hour as we discover how we are agents of hope and compassion for a better world with our guest, Jan Phillips. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jan, welcome. Thank you, Justine. I'm so thrilled to be here with you. Well, thank you so much for coming. We're thrilled to have you here. I would like to go back a bit in your history. You at one time were studying to be a nun. Can you tell us about that? Yes, at the age of 18, I left Syracuse, New York, and went to become a postulant in the order of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet. Um, the novitiate there, I was a bit like a union organizer in a Walmart to them, so obviously it wasn't a good fit. I was an original thinker. I was independent. They were training me for obedience. I'm obedient to my own consciousness, so they dismissed me after two years. So then I was, you know, t went back to Syracuse, and from there I had to figure out how to make a living for myself. What made you decide to go in the first place, being such an original thinker? I decided at the age of 12, because in sixth grade, my teacher, Sister Helen Charles, saw that within this shy little 
insecure girl who pretty much walked with her head down, had no confidence. She saw that inside there was a force, and she committed herself to bringing that out. So during the course of my sixth grade, I experienced in a very visceral way the emergence of a butterfly from my little caterpillar cocoon. And when that happened, I committed to being a nun, thinking, that's what nuns do? I want to do that for other people. They have some kind of a magic wand, must be. So at age 12, I decided to be a nun, and that made my high school career really easy. I didn't have to think about anything else. And so you joined it. And when you were dismissed, um, that must not have been very easy, even though they were probably quite correct in thinking that you weren't good nun material, so to speak, in their view. Uh, what what was that like? It was the most devastating experience of my life, and it caused me to feel that I had done something wrong in the eyes of the Creator, did something wrong in the eyes of my church, that I had failed myself, failed God, failed everybody. So I... Be, so the journey I was on was a journey that was pretty underwritten by grief, agony, sorrow, and I had no sense of what I could be in the world. That took about 20 years to transform that curse into a blessing. So I know now it was the greatest thing that happened to me, and I know now that those two years were the most precious years of my life because that's when I was introduced to... Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Thomas Merton, and Teilhard de Chardin. So the mystic, the scientist, the activist, the contemplative who was merging East and West in his spirituality. So once I buried myself into the context of their lives and really embodied their brilliance, then it was okay for me to leave. And the other thing that's really important about that spiritual path of, of having two years in a religious convent was I actually got the formula for bliss there. I know the formula for bliss. Oh, now you have to say more. <laughs> because it's like a boot camp, right? They order your days for you until you take your first vows. And so they ordered my days and all the novices' days with equal parts of prayer and community and solitude and service. And I was blissful in that context. When my days had that order to them, I couldn't have been any happier than I was as a postulant and a novice in that religious order. And so now, whenever I feel out of bliss, I recall the formula, and I look at the balance of time in my life, and I see what needs to get—it's like rebalancing your portfolio— of time. And it's so hard for us to have that balance when we're not in such a strict order of things, when life is coming at us, coming and going and different things. Um, how, how do you suggest that we get back in balance? I think the most important thing for each of us, whether you're pagan, atheist, post-theist, is to be sure 
that you have what you refer to as a spiritual practice in your life. It could be 10 minutes, but a concentrated chunk of time where you are in solitude and in communion with that which might be considered supreme intelligence, the great source, divine mind, so that you can be a receiver like a satellite dish for the intelligence that's fueling our existence and that's waiting for us to transform it into inspiration for ourselves and the world. So the spiritual practice part, I think, is one of the most important parts. The other parts is that you have time and a commitment to some kind of service in the world that you have a dedicated uh, way of being of use to a service, to a nonprofit or something, and that you have time when you're you have prayer in your life, and that's your spiritual community. That would be like your group, your circling groups that supports and feeds your spiritual being. And then, of course, your regular life where you feed yourself mentally, emotionally by creating the relationships that you need. You never can count on one person, you know, to sustain you emotionally. You never can count on your family Mm -hmm. to get you as a creative person. So we really have to create mindfully our circles of support who mirror us back to ourselves so that we can see the value and the force we are in the world. Jan, let's go back to the spiritual practice that you were talking about. I would love for you to share a bit about your own spiritual practice, how you developed it, and especially talking about the listening part of it. Yeah. I started it in 1990 when I was in graduate school and having a really difficult time. And so I went to the woman, Sister Paula, who was in my religious community. She's a sculptor and an astrologer and kind of my spiritual mentor in a way. She's very intuitive, almost psychic, I guess you'd say. And she's the one that advised me to do grad school. So when I decided one morning I was going to quit, she said, I called her up. I said, Paula, I just want you to know I'm quitting grad school because it's just not fun enough and it's terrible. And She goes, oh, Jan, wait, wait, wait. And then she asked me three questions. The first was, are you eating and drinking moderately? The second was, are you doing something for your physical well-being? And the third was, do you have a spiritual practice? And my answer to all of them was no. She says to me, please, before you quit school, take two weeks Get those things under control and f- and call me up after two weeks and let me know. So I went out and bought a bicycle. I figured out I was in my bed when I called her in the morning and I said to well, after I hung up, I said, okay, what am I going to do for my spiritual practice? I knew it was not going to be hard. I'm not going to sit zazen. I'm not going to, you know, have to do something that hurts me. So I looked around and I said, I know, I'll put a candle on the TV at the bottom of the bed. I'll I'll take 20 minutes, I'll have my coffee, and I'll just sit there and commit to being in the void, to being in the presence of whatever is there, and I will not dedicate my attention to anything external. And so, but I was kind of reluctant to do it because I was a busy beaver, right? So 20 minutes seemed like a lot. 
And when that started happening, all heaven broke loose for me. Lots and lots of creativity. That's when I, wrote, I did my first CD. All my original music gets downloaded. Suddenly, there was a great deal of information once I committed myself to 20 minutes of doing nothing but listening. Like a tree commits to photosynthesis. It's just a natural phenomenon of reception, right? So now I'm up to an hour a day just because I'm with my lover. When you're with your lover, the great beloved, when all that communion is just fueling and feeding your imagination, where would I rather be? So that was the start of it. And I, after two weeks of dedicating myself to the practice, Got my bicycle, rode to SU, started eating and drinking moderately. When I called Sister Paula back, I said, Paula, you're not going to believe it, but everybody on campus has changed. <laughs> right? Yeah. It looks like that. <laughs> but does. everything changed for me when I started my spiritual practice. So I know. And I know people. when people say to me, yeah, but, you know, I'm too busy. I can't commit. I just say, okay, bye. You don't mean it yet. I'm not going to, I can't dedicate myself to your life if you're not even committed to excellence in mm-hmm. that area. When you say listening, did you, um, uh, and receiving, that kind of receiving, do, did you have a pen and paper next I did have my journal next yeah, to me, uh-huh. as I usually do. Yeah. And in fact, the first song on my uh, CD, All the Way to Heaven, is called Rebecca's Song, because I immediately said, well, what the hell am I going to do now if i got to figure out about a spiritual practice? And right, these words come right into mm-hmm. my journal. And it was like po- poetic. And I said, oh, no, don't tell me I've got a muse that likes, you know, rhymey poetry. <laughs> so I said, wonder if this is a song. So I got my guitar. Sure enough, it's a song. And that was the beginning of the greatest blissful experience of communion I've ever known. Thank you. I'm here with Jan Phillips. She's the author of No Ordinary Time, The Rise of Spiritual Intelligence and Evolutionary Creativity. By the way, this is a book of hours for a prophetic age. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Jan Phillips. She's the author of No Ordinary Time, The Rise of Spiritual Intelligence and Evolutionary Creativity. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, she does a monthly newsletter, and you can get on that list. I, I know that there are wonderful things that she sends out each month. I have. I get it, and I love it. And you can get there by going to Jan Phillips. 
newdimensions.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Jen, we're talking about spiritual practice, and, and all, you know, in your book, you divide it up into seven days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so forth, and um, the second day, Tuesday, is um, called Discipline, and you you have a great story in that section that I just loved. It was a story of the black patent leather shoes. Can you tell us about those shoes? One day I found at a, at a little antique store a pair of patent leather shoes with these pink swirly insides that looked exactly like the shoes I could halfway remember wearing when I was maybe three years old. And as I looked at them, I, had, I felt in my body all of what I would might be feeling as a little three-year-old girl. So I bought the shoes, and I decided to take them on a photo trip for one whole day just to place them at places where I had great joy, and I took them to the side of the, one of the Finger Lakes, and I took them to a playground and placed them right at the bottom of the slide before you go up the steps. And I, and I took them to the front of the cathedral that had locked doors there. And it was kind of a metaphor for my experiences with being kind of not invited, not welcomed into the church anymore. And we went on the whole day, and it was a very emotional, fulfilling day for me and good photographs. But ultimately, when I started that peace pilgrimage around the world, at the last minute, I decided I had to take the patent leather shoes with me. And when I was in Nepal, I trekked up to the top of the Annapurna Sanctuary, took those little shoes and photographed them looking over the vastness of the Himalayas. And then I knew I could be done with them. So as I was walking back down the mountain, I came upon this woman with a little three-year-old daughter. And I pulled the shoes out of my backpack and I said, here, see if they fit. And the little girl had never, ever seen such shiny, black, beautiful shoes in all her life. And we slipped her little foot in and it was perfect. And we clasped them and she just jumped up, jumped up for joy and ran around showing everybody her beautiful black patent leather shoes. So that's the story of those shoes. They were of great service to me and others ultimately. And they really put you back into that sense of joy and awe and that you felt as a child. Right. So how, how can we all tap into that? I, I think there's certain things for each of us that are visual metaphors that take us back, like a radio flyer wagon or a tricycle or a little rowboat or something. Images that take us back. You know, Kaim Potok has a beautiful quotation where he says, people love most the places where they learned the value of things. And I think as children, when we had our little radio flyers and we were being guided and nurtured as to how to be good little human beings and share, to have images of those things around us. I have images of boats and 
radio flyers and tricycles all around my room just because I feel it keeps me youthful in my mind. It keeps me mindful of those values that I was acquiring when I was so little about how to be in the world. It keeps me in a state of awe because mm-hmm. kids are full of awe. You know, uh, there's a, uh, you say in your book, we are vulnerable to fear when we leave the present. That that really kind of popped out at me when I read that about when when we get fearful, when we get out of that place of awe and inspiration and we start to contract and be in fear, it's about because we're not here right now. Can you say something about that? Yes, and in fact, that's my whole rationale for why creativity is a healing event. Because when you're doing that thing, which you most love to do, whether it's cooking or fly fishing or playing golf or knitting, you are ensconced in that activity so that time flies. You're only in the present moment. Our creative work roots us in the present moment. And we cannot be harmed because, if you will, I think that's where the where God hangs out. I think the present moment is heaven. As Catherine of Siena says, all the way to heaven is heaven. But we're in the present. We're not agitated. Like, say you go back into the past. That's where your regrets are, your resentments are. You go ahead into the future. You become anxious. You're fearful. What can, what can happen? What can be... Even my driving up here today, it took me an hour and a half to get here. And as I'm driving through Sonoma County, where I lived in the late 70s, I'm mindful of all the, the weird mistakes, the choices I made that I'm somewhat regretful about. But it's like, nah, that was just back then. And when I stick in the present moment, I see there's nothing but bliss. You know, they say we're hardwired for bliss. Our software is corrupt. But I'm tweaking and fixing my software all the time. So I don't gravitate outside of the bliss area very often. This uh, You have a wonderful... Um, word that I've never come across. You call it infosynthesis. And this is like, explain about how we're progressing. Well, let's go back to a little bit about the bacteria. In fact, we just had an interview with um, Elizabeth Satoris. So, you know, I I, I got very excited with her about, about the bacteria and how it's all, they got together and they kept... Um, evolving. Single-celled become multicellular, multicellular units because on their own they can't feed themselves because the food source was eliminated. So they call, they send these little signals out that call for them all to come together and once they're multicellular they can do anything they need to do. They get their food source, and then they can break back off and become one-celled units if they want to, just like human beings. But the infosynthesis part is more reflective of the experience of a tree. Now, we know the elements of photosynthesis. Look at us. We're built like trees. My arms are out like branches, right? So in photosynthesis, what happens is the trees take in light, rain, sunlight, and they convert that into food. The magic ingredient, as we remember from science class, is the green stuff called chlorophyll. Now, 
the, the, it, and it creates nutrients from the natural resources of light and air and heat. And so I think of ourselves, because we are nature. We're, we're nature looking at nature. We're nature weeping at nature. We're, nat- we're nature fixing nature, right? So we're an ex- we're an evolved version of a tree. And so our process I call infosynthesis because we are absorbing intelligence or information. Our magic ingredient is not chlorophyll. It's the imagination. But what we do is convert intelligence or information into inspiration for ourselves and others. And that's why our creative work is really important because it heals me. If I do my work, my book has healed you to some extent. Your work has healed me to some extent, right? So when we do our creative work, it's just the natural process. So if someone says, I'm not creative, it's baloney. We're creative by default. We can't not create. You use the word um, prophetic action. You know, when you say the knowledge comes in and you you suggest that we mix that with our imagination then and and we turn it into some action and you call it prophetic action what do you mean by that it's prophetic if your if your creative urges are inclined toward the creation of a world that works for everyone say i mean somebody could be making a porn movie this is not prophetic it could be creative, but it's not prophetic. So in my opinion, what makes something prophetic and evolutionary is that it has the intention behind it that it's good for the universe, good for people, planet, and good for me. That's triple bottom line thinking. Mm-hmm. In the corporate world, there's whole systems of accounting doing triple bottom line thinking that means it has to be good for the people, good for the planet, and good for the profits, right? But in the creative world, in order for creativity to be prophetic, it has to meet those same requirements. Evolutionary creativity is a creativity that's good for me, good for you, and good for Mother Earth. Right, right. And so you and you also talk, um, this is another word that I had never come across, you talk where we're evolving from homo sapiens to homo sapiens? Sensiens. Homo. Remember how we learned we're homo sapiens sapiens? Yes. The wise. What, what, what does that mean? Homo sapiens sapiens means the wise ones who know they're wise. It's a total misnomer. Right? It's like saying we went through an enlightenment era. era. Who's enlightened? You know, right. we, we never went through true enlightenment yet. We're still drowsing, sleepy, drowsy, right? So the, the thing, what's the word that? Homo, homo sapiens. Okay, so what I'm saying is that I think we're shifting from homo sapiens, the one who knows, into homo sentience, the one who feels. The sentient being is the one who feels, right? The sentient, 
being feels. The sapiens is about wisdom. So I'm thinking, I don't know if you recall this from the work of Teilhard de Chardin, but he was a theoretician. He, well, he's a paleontologist who had a theory called around the planet is a thinking envelope. And that he called the nuosphere because nuos from the Greek nous meaning mind. And he was a male He was a Jesuit, a brainiac, you know, and I say one morning I wake up and I think, well, that was good for the 40s and the 50s, but now we're in the 21st century and I'm advancing his theory. And I think beyond the thinking envelope, the nuosphere is what I call the erosphere, E-R-O-S, and that's the feeling domain, the feminine domain, and that's where we collide with the infinite one. You know, Jan, I just downloaded some, because I heard a a phrase, and I can't remember where I read it, but I, I read something about some research that I think happened at Harvard. I'm pretty sure it was Harvard, and they, he, they did research about the a nanosecond before the thought comes in, a feeling arises first. So let's talk about that in just one moment. I, w- I want you to comment on that. My name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Jan Phillips, and she's the author of No Ordinary Time, The Rise of Spiritual Intelligence and Evolutionary Creativity. If you'd like to be on her mailing list for her monthly newsletter, e-newsletter, and I, I suggest it, it's a wonderful e-letter, go to janphillips.com, and Phillips is spelled P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S. Dot com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And we're talking about feelings. We're talking about the erosphere, <laughs> which is the feeling. And, and I was mentioning about a study that either Harvard or Boston, maybe it was Boston University, and it um, about how, and HeartMath has done studies on it too, about how there's a, a feeling is comes before the thought. Can you say something about that, Jan? Yes, and here's what the research looks like. They'll hook you up to what's kind of like a lie detector thing, the kind of a galvanometer, so they can sense your bodily responses to certain images, and they will have a random generator program a computer to put a series of images on the screen that nobody in the world knows what's coming up, and they're designed to evoke certain kinds of emotions. So there'll be flowers and waterfalls and lovely things like a fawn in the forest, and then a terrible mutilated body at a minefield that's exploded or some bomb 
bomb that's detonated in a city. So very dramatic images meant to evoke emotions. And what they find is that moments before the negative, terrible, dark image comes on the screen, the body reacts. And there is no way for anyone to know ahead of time, but the body knows ahead of time. So the kind of analysis about that research is that our sensory apparatus is constantly scanning the future before it arrives. Now, it's hard for us as human beings with with the limited sensibilities that we have because we're all agreeing there's only five senses and nobody's willing to, you know, jump out into the more quantum possibilities of our lives. So we're all, you know, living in a world where we can't, we're not accessing the future. Although some physicists are talking about, you know, how to collapse the probability wave. Amit Gatswani, I think is one, he says it really beautiful, where Right, there's this thin veil between us and the realm of all possibilities. And we be, we have the ability to go on the other side of that thin veil and, and bring down, collapse the probability wave to really take that waveform and bring it into the world of particles so it becomes part of our manifest reality. We do this through consciousness. That's why we talk. There's a direct relationship between your spiritual practices, toning the muscles of your consciousness so that you are very clear. Life is not something that's happening to you. It's something that's happening through you. You are, for the most part, creating the circumstances of your life that you wake up to and enter into. Nobody's doing that but you and there of course there's invisible forces that we can't that we're not responsible for particularly that we're we are in a dance still with the invisible forces that's totally clear but for the most part our consciousness our thoughts what you think on Tuesday becomes the life you live on Thursday and if if that's so then how, how do we figure out those habitual thoughts that we're having how how do you know because we have these ruts and we're not even aware that we're thinking certain thoughts that are now going to manifest for us on Thursday how do how do how do we trigger ourselves to not uh, go down that path well i think any time that we have a thought that's negative or that we wouldn't want to come true we just stop thinking it You know, thoughts are like clouds going through the sky, and you can pull them down and entertain them and dwell in it, but why would you if it doesn't support your well-being or your happiness or your joy, right? So what higher consciousness is, I'm talking to the spiritually elite. We're trying to become like spiritual green berets here, right, so that we actively have take charge over the thoughts that we're thinking. Now, as those clouds drift by in the course of a minute, you know, there could be 25 different thoughts about the state of the world, poverty, my own financial 
state right now, my mother at 88, right? So I choose which ones I'm going to pull down and entertain. So to be a conscious person means you only really engage with the thoughts that move you forward toward bliss, toward a higher level of creativity. Now, in when you're saying that, though, let, let's say there's a thought let's say it's about our personal finances. Now, we may need to take care of something there. Yes. So, there, so you're not saying to, to then just to negate that thought because we may need some critical thinking about our future if, the, if there's a thought that comes in about, okay, how I'm going to pay the rent this month. Right. I'm just saying fear. If it has to do with fear, and if you have to, you know, make some changes in your life, in order to eliminate that fear of, oh, my God, I'm going to be a bag lady, then you start to make those changes. Because if you have a thought that provokes fear, you have to fix the thing. You have to examine it, make sure it's your original thought. You know, because every ad, we are exposed to 3,000 ads a day that try to provoke fear so that we'll buy the product they are selling to us, right? So we have to be able to distinguish between if I, br- if I have a thought in my head that causes me fear, one, is it my own thought? Do I, is it for my own benefit that I need to address these issues? Or is it fear because the commercial says you're too old, nobody's interested, you're mm-hmm. too fat, you're not thin enough, those wrinkles in your face are ugliest and... If it's provoked by the consumerist capitalist culture, which only thrives on us feeling fear Mm -hmm. and anxiety, then we can get off the hook. Right, exactly. I want to talk a little bit about a trip that you took maybe early on that you were going to travel. And you've traveled across the country several times. and uh, by road, <laughs> not just flying over it, but I mean, really immersing yourself in the culture. And you were looking, you were going to find out what do Americans value and what, what are some of the aha moments that you discovered in that trip? The, the biggest aha event that happened with, for me was with a man who... I was in his house because I was interviewing his sister, and they shared their family homestead. I went into the room, his living room, and looked down the coffee table, and it was strewn with John Birch material. And I had a very uncomfortable feeling, a lot of militaristic, very right-wing, total fundamentalist. I had a a really uncomfortable feeling because I knew everything I am and I stand for was the complete opposite of this man, and I was very happy that he wasn't home. I had him in the box called the enemy or the other, right? So he's 87 years old, and I was hoping to get out of town before he got home, but it didn't happen. And so he came home while I was having dinner with his sister, and then he insisted I interview him because I'm interviewing people in small towns about their values, right? So he goes, well, interview me tomorrow morning. Meet me at 8 o'clock on the front porch. So so you weren't going to get out of it. I wasn't going to get out. So. I, I take my little pad, I go to the front porch, I'm there at 8 o'clock, and he does, he's going to lead me on a, on a walk through his acreage. He, he, he had made all his money in lumber, and I, I never knew that, but he loved, you know, the trees. And so I'm following around, he's gruff, he's just miserable old man. 
And then all of a sudden he stops and he's got his walking stick and he points it up there on a looking over at a walnut tree. He goes, look over there, that walnut tree. You tell me what power's loose in the world that can make that tree produce those hundreds and hundreds of nuts that have so much power I can't even crack them without my nutcracker. What power's loose in the world? Then he takes me over to the garden, does the same thing with the corn. He goes, look at those rows of corn, perfectly ordered. What's going to happen when I take that silk tassel down and look at what's under that husk? I'm going to find myself row after row of perfect golden kernels of corn. What powers loose in the world that can make that happen? And I'm like, oh, my God, Arthur, who's this man? I thought he was my enemy. I'm falling in love with him, right? And he is falling in love with me because I'm a huge satellite dish for him. I'm captivated by every word. He's just, you know, the Southerners are the best mm-hmm. storytellers in the world, right? How he speaks is so beautiful. And I fall in love with Arthur. I'm there for three more days. He walks me all over his hundred acres, tells me every story about every tree. I finally said, Arthur, I have to get on my way. He goes, well, I got to confess to you before you leave the one thing I did wrong. What's that, Arthur? He goes, I never got myself out to them redwood trees and those sequoias before I was too old. I said, Arthur, you're 87. You're not too old. You can still do it. He goes, no, that day's gone for me. I'll never get out there to see those trees. And he was just lamenting all over the place. So every time I found a drugstore where there was some cards, had a picture of trees on it, I'd send him a little card, said, Arthur, Get to the Redwoods, there's still time. Love you, Jan, right? So I'm on the road for nine months. When I get back home, I go to the post office, get my big box of mail, and right on top of that box of mail is a postcard from the Sequoia National Forest from Arthur. He says, Dear Jan, hadn't it been for you, I'd have never got here. Now I'm on my knees crying like a baby. These trees are the most powerful thing in the world. What powers loose here? Love, Arthur. Mm. I had him in the box called the enemy. The enemy, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, that collision of the two poles the leftist, liberal, radical meets the fundamentalist, conservative, right-winger. Love can happen if they dare to come close enough to each other. Mm. And in fact, you really suggest that we need all that full diversity of voices. We need to meet with our polar opposite, that, 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 that we're not really separate from that. Well, not separate from it. That's a little hard one to get because, culturally speaking, we're totally programmed for separateness. On the quantum level, you know, the physicists are doing really a good job of trying to reinvent ways of of talking about our, our closeness to each other. But I'll tell you that diversity study that I wrote about in The Art of Original Thinking gives gives us a good visual for it. 
the, the, the researchers have a creative challenge. They create two groups, one called smart agents and one called not-so-smart agents. And let's talk about those two groups in just one moment. I'm here with Jan Phillips, and she's the author of No Ordinary Time, The Rise of Spiritual Intelligence and Evolutionary Creativity. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Jan Phillips. She's a creative artist. She's a writer, author of many, many books and CDs, singer, composer, uh, just a real uh, original thinker. Thank you so much for being with us, Jan. And um, she's her most recent book is No Ordinary Time, The Rise of Spiritual Intelligence and Evolutionary Creativity. Now we're just going to, we're just about to talk about a what, what, what was it? Diversity. Exper- di- diversity and an experiment. To talk about that. Okay, so they create two groups to address a particular creative challenge. The one group they call smart agents, and they compose it of 10 white male CEOs. The second group they call not-so-smart agents, and it's composed of a diverse group of individuals, maybe the plumber, the bookkeeper, clerk typist, a a nun, uh, an immigrant, um, a Mexican worker, 10 people from really diverse ethnicities and experiences. They give both both groups the same creative challenge and the same amount of time but what happens is the, the group of smart agents fails miserably to come up with a creative solution to it. And the group called not-so-smart agents has a ton of great ideas to address and ways to address the creative challenge. And they say the reason for the, for the smart agents group failure is because they have a redundancy of information and a redundancy of experience. So they were very, very limited by their all. They all grew up knowing the same things, feeling and experiencing the same things for the most part. And when you have diverse individuals from all kinds of different cultures, colors, religions, etc., they bring all of their multidimensional experiences to the table and creative sparks are just flying, right? So for me, what that led me to believe now, when I'm just at the point where I'm creating a board for my nonprofit Living Kindness Foundation. And what I know from that diversity study 
is I am going to create a board that's at least one half of the people will be under 30 that will have many people of color and many people from other cultural avenues than the one I grew up with so that we can really be the most creative, creatively sparking group that we can be. And, you know, it's not easy, though, for us. Uh, because we're gonna, we're gonna be these young people that you're gonna have on your board. They're gonna come up with things that are gonna rub you the wrong way, and some at least your first response is gonna be, uh, I mean, I I know that I've had that. So talk more about that. What what we do with that? You know, Tony DeMello was a great retreat director. He was a Jesuit priest from India, and one of his wonderful lines is. The greatest thing we can do for each other is to challenge each other's thinking. I always say that at the beginning of a workshop because my real job is to say things to you that cause you to really explore your own beliefs for their authenticity, right? So if I say something that makes you feel upset because I feel it feels like I'm attacking your belief system. That's a good indicator to you that you're being run by inherited beliefs, by somebody else's beliefs. Because if they're your own personal original thoughts, there's no need to defend them. You really welcome other diverse thoughts to complement it. I remember getting in a fist fight once with a Methodist boy who said, Jesus was not born on December 25, and I thought that was heretical. And I jumped him and started pummeling him with my fists. I thought I was the greatest defender of the truth, this little Catholic kid. Totally nonsensical, but it was an inherited belief that I would go to war for, right? So I welcome the ideas from the young ones even though, yeah, I'm troubled by everyone texting all the time and not building real physical relationships, you know, and it bugs me. There's certain things that bugs me about how technology is sort of taking over, and I hope it doesn't obliterate our humanness in relationships, but I'm willing to be stretched. Mm-hmm. You know, you describe in your book a wonderful conference where they they did it very differently, and it really invited in that kind of diversity of viewpoint. Can you describe that conference? Well, you know, I, I'm always looking at conferences. I'm not exactly sure, you know, which is the one that we're talking about. I can't totally recall that conference that I was talking about. Well, I, I can I can say something, some detail about it, because I, I just happened to just read it. So oh, okay. It was where... Um, the, the the speaker was allowed to speak like for, I don't know, two, eight minutes. And then the other speakers in the conference were allowed to to kind of comment jointly oh, yes, on it. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That was a conference that I had read about. Okay. I hadn't actually attended it, but I had read about it. And I thought, yes, this is moving in the right direction. Because the old ways of doing a conference where you have your keynote speaker, you know, where everybody's sitting in the audience looking at he's the master and all that is so old and will keep on getting us to the same place. You know, I watch, I look at Bioneers conferences. I'm looking at Noetic Science conferences. 
conferences. All these conferences, I'm always looking for to see, do they have as many women as they do men? Are they inviting the authors, or not the authors, the artists? Because the artists are the ones who need to come in between every brainy thing and help to open up the passageway between the brain and the heart. That's the work of the artist. So the information can drift down into the heart zone, and that's what causes real change in the body and the person and the commitment levels, right? So I think there's a big failure in that these conferences that, that say they're about conscious change in the world don't, they're not inviting the artists. Inviting the artists and also inviting the um audience. I, I attended a, a conference at Omega. It was uh, Power of Women. And it was so wonderful because before any speaker spoke, they randomly picked out a row of people, gave the microphone and had the first 10 people in that row speak. Beautiful. And, and each person got like maybe uh, a minute and a half. And and it started paying, popcorning all these yes. ideas. And we all, we get very, very clear on the fact that any one of us could be up there at the microphone speaking yes. to all the, all of us. Because exactly. the, the wisdom within the group, and yes. I'm just supporting what you're saying, right. that wisdom within the group is so big. Absolutely. That's why the Dalai Lama, I think he said the next savior is going to be a Sangha. Asanga, it's a spiritual community, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Not going to be one person. That That's an old, that's the old patriarchal way. It just doesn't work for us anymore because we're way more complex. Our needs are more serious and severe. So it's the wisdom of the crowd that's going to surface in exactly those ways. I love it. You know, a lot of times I'm in the middle of doing a conference and someone will come up to me because I invite everyone to talk. Someone comes up and says, we want to hear you more. You, you talk more. Don't keep having everybody else in here talk. I'm saying that's part of the problem. You think I'm the one that has the answer? No, it's just my turn to hold the microphone. The answers are in this room. All of us have a, like Ken Wilber says, you're all right, only partly so, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to give our part. So t- we can be an inspiration to each other, though. I mean, you've had some wonderful inspirational moments. I'm, I'm thinking of um, your uh, sister, Robert Joseph, who was part of your high school, and she she was not afraid of these rowdy teenagers. Can you describe her? It was so wonderful, the gift that she gave you. Two, well, two, two gifts. One was when every Catholic kid... At the, when the bell rings, you stand up in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost at that time, and you say your prayers. She comes in the room. She says, forget about that. When the bell rings, she gives us a mimeograph sheet of paper with, for five days a week all squished on one sheet, five poems, right? And so Monday, E.E. E. Cummings, I thank you, God, for Mo- Tuesday, Elizabeth Dick- Emily Dickinson, right? So we all learn poetry. The other thing she did is she told us about social activism. She talked to us about labor unions. She had us write essays about our feelings when everyone else is begging us to just deny them and stop talking about them. And she herself went to Selma, Alabama to march to Montgomery, right? So she, in every way, she embodied compassion Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and elicited from us the greatest of our creativity 
So what could you say to us about how we can live a more creative, imaginative life? I think it's really important to know your heart's desire and to follow it. That's countercultural for people, many people that were raised Christian or Catholic. It seems like there's something wrong about that. But another great thing that Tony DeMello said is do what you want. That's not selfish. Selfish is expecting other people to do what you want, right? So my advice to people is to figure out what you really want. What would you do if you won the lottery? And then figure out how to do that in the service. If you love golf, figure out how to do a golf tournament and give it to, you know, the give it to Living Kindness Foundation and let's get the kids in edu- in Nigeria educated, there right? There you go. There you go. We could just cover so much. I just have all these notes of things that I would would have loved to have talked to you about, but people are going to have to pick up the book and really kind of go through it and be inspired by it. Thank you so much, Jan, for being with us. It's been so fun. Thanks, Justine. I've been speaking with Jan Phillips. She's the author of No Ordinary Time, The Rise of Spiritual Intelligence and Evolutionary Creativity. If you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, janphillips.com, and you can sign up for her monthly newsletter. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3419. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.